Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. If you're a business owner or you're looking to become a business owner, one of the fundamental questions you're going to have to answer is, do I build something from scratch or do I buy an existing business? Now, that question, quite interestingly, is the same question you'll have to ask yourself as you continue to grow your company. Do I continue to grow organically and competing in the market or do I go and acquire other businesses as a growth strategy? Now, my next guest is Wendy Pease, and she is the CEO of a company called Rapport International. Uh, They're a translation business, B2B services. They help companies who want to develop an international marketing strategy, launch into new markets, and they handle all the translation from everything in your marketing materials through to your contracts. Now, Wendy runs a fantastic business. But before she got into this, she had to answer that pivotal question. Do I start something or do I buy something? And what was really interesting with Wendy is, you know, she shares with us her, her story about how she didn't really have a, a, a passion, a burning idea that she just wanted to launch from scratch and was willing to pour herself into that. So, so really acquiring something became the obvious path. Now, Wendy's going to talk through that experience, um, which was a little bit different from a lot of people, I must admit. So it was quite interesting. But then she's actually gone on to continue building her business both organically and through acquisitions. Look, it's a fascinating story for anyone who's looking to grow their business and really get out there and make a difference for themselves. This will be a a really interesting episode. I really hope you enjoy it. This is Wendy Pease. Wendy, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to have you and I appreciate you making, uh, making the time in such an odd sort of difference of time zone. So, uh, uh, so for those listening, um, Wendy's over in the States in, uh, in Boston or in the Boston area. So, uh, it's 7 p.m. her time as opposed to sort of uh, about quarter to nine here. So it's, um, yeah, I always appreciate people making the time out of hours. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. With global business, you know, that's what we specialize in. Uh, you know, we're used to dealing with different time zones. So. Good to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Um, Wendy, I know we're going to have a bit of a chat about your business, uh, Rapport International. Um, maybe could you just kick off, just for the audience, give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to kind of getting into that business? Sure. Uh, well, I um, had run my own business when I was in my twenties. I just. I was in an industry where it, it just made sense. I was representing doctors as expert witnesses. 
and um, some private doctors wanted me to represent them. So I did that, but I realized I knew how to grow a business to a certain size, but I didn't really, I majored in foreign service for undergrad and I had a minor in business, but I didn't really feel like I had the tools to grow a business big. So I went back to business school and got my MBA from Dartmouth, the Tuck School of Business. And there I found out about the um, venture capital industry and I went, oh, this is so cool. So after graduating, I went to work in portfolio companies to help grow companies bigger. And at one point we, um, you know, I was involved in helping take a, a company public and helping sell a company, um, helping buy a company. Um, so I had done some due diligence, but it was always with other people's money, you know, OPM. <laughs> and so um, after that, um, I was laid off on maternity leave and I was trying to decide what to do. And I really wanted to be a business owner again. But I had no idea of what to start or what to do. I just knew I wanted to be in business to business services and I wanted it to be something where I didn't provide the services. I wanted to run the business. And so I was just daydreaming around and I ran into a, um, I was at a venture capital fair and I ran into a fellow tech alum who said, well, why don't you buy a business? I'd never thought about doing that. I'm like, I need to work. I don't have capital. I, you know, I didn't want to take a loan out. I, you know, but that little idea planted itself in my head. And so I went on uh, Google and just said, buy a business. And there's these brokerages that list all these business for sale. And I came across this little translation company that was for sale. The owner had had it for 17 years. She was ready to do something else. It was a similar business model to the company that I had. I was, you know, earlier in California, I was representing doctors as expert witnesses. Now I'm representing linguists as ex language experts. So I thought, well, that would be cool. And I majored in foreign service and I speak some Spanish, French, and Italian, but not well enough to do the work. Um, I love travel and different cultures. I lived international. So it just was a fit. Um, and so here we are 18 years later <laughs> from that original acquisition. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, we deal with a lot of business owners and we, we talk a lot about growing companies and, you know, I mean, obviously the name of the podcast, right? People buy, they grow, they sell. This is kind of a cycle. Um, but when, when I chat to a lot of business owners and they talk about, you know, you're getting into business and same with growing a business, you, you've really only got two options. You, you build or you buy. What was for yourself? I mean, like this idea of buying. I mean, it, did did you did you consider just doing a startup, or did you was it just you know no no idea came to mind, or you know did you toy between the ideas at all? I did. I didn't have a good idea. I just didn't have something that hit me that said, "Yeah, this is what I want to do." And when I found this company. I went, that is cool. I had never thought about it before. I knew there was a, a need for it because I can remember saying to my dad in high school, oh, it'd be cool to be an interpreter. And he said, which was really good advice, he said, go get to be a specialist in something and bilingual, and that will give you more value. Now, I just happened to go off in another direction, but I've always had that love of languages. In looking at this, I got that passion about it. Now, ironically, 
partway through the deal, it looked like it was going to fall through, you know, as deals often do. And I was kind of bummed about it. And I had hired a broker to represent me on my side because when I had worked in the businesses, you know, you had every advisor imaginable. And I was like, well, I'm on my own here. <laughs> you know, I'm going to use my own money. I don't have an advisor. I don't have somebody who's experienced in it. So I hired somebody to advise me and he said, well, you know, all deals don't go through. It's the first one you've looked at. On average, people look at like 100 or something. He's like, but I got this other great company that's for sale. Now, imagine these white tablecloths blowing gently in the wind on a nice sunny day on Nantucket. I was like, yeah. And he said he had this company that provided linens for like corporate events and other events. And all I could think of is that is laundry and trucks. And there was <laughs> nothing yeah. exciting about it. And he's like, look at their numbers. They're so profitable. They've got a long-term client. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I have no passion for that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, luckily he came up with a good idea, you know, is every buyer wants to do some sort of payout and every seller wants all the cash up front. So this is where we were sticking. And he said, well, why, you know, he came up with the idea of why don't I put the money in trust? We have an agreement of once she checked off on the things that were supposed to happen, then I would sign to release the funds from trust. And so that, that saved the deal. Cause then we both felt, you know, we felt like we compromised, but we met both our needs. Yeah, yeah, it's about about risk mitigation, right? For for both parties. But um, so so take me back a little bit. So you jumped online, you did did a bit of a Google search, and like, did, did this business is this did this come up immediately, or how how long were you searching before you found this particular opportunity? I probably went to that conference in April. I found it. I'm going to give you American holidays here. The 4th of July, around then I found it. Um, and then by Labor Day, which was yesterday here in the United States, the first Monday of September, uh, we had closed on it. So it was, it was pretty quick from beginning to end. And um, how I found it was I would go into, it's like buyabusiness.com. I don't know. Do you have a website where you list? We, we have lots of different websites over here. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I know, know the ones you're talking about. Okay. Well, I just went on those. Um, I didn't know if you held one for companies that you were selling. I was going to say say the name of it. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, we, we do use a couple of them, but a lot of our, our clients don't suit those kind of websites. They're often too large and they don't, um, the bigger the business, the less kind of it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular audience that tends to be on the websites, which, I mean, they're great, but it's, it's just not for every business. So. Yeah, once you get to a certain size, then you're going more to an investment banker because it's a much more complex deal. So, For sure. For yeah. Sure. And this I've only learned since doing it or, you know, the broker that I hired to represent me was doing more investment banking at that, you know, the not the huge Wall Street kind, but that, that sweet spot. Um, but yeah, I just went to like buyabusiness.com or um, bizbuysell and I searched, I wanted something close to me, you know, in Massachusetts, something that was business to business services. I was looking for a certain revenue range. 
Um, and I was going smaller at that point because I didn't realize, um, you know, about getting the loans that, you know, access to the loans and uh, buying larger. Sometimes you get a more stable business too. Did, had you made other inquiries on other businesses or was this just literally the first one that you, you saw and really liked? First one. <laughs> wow. You really are a unicorn. <laughs> yes, I am on that one. Now on my second one, and then I'm looking for my third one. Much different. You know, I've kept an eye out for years because now I need something that can match the culture we have and complement the services. And yeah, yeah, no, it was completely besides the, you know, tablecloths blowing in the winds. <laughs> I didn't. I really, you know, I put my eyes in on this one. I guess and while it was, you know, looking questionable, I was looking at some other home health care things. But this was really the first one I found that I said, oh, I'm really interested in that. And she had had a deal fall through about six or nine months before that. So she was a very motivated seller just because she was ready to move on. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really interesting, and and congratulations. I mean, I, I've I've been on the buy side. In in fact, the, the, it, it was the nexus of uh, you know what is now Exit Advisory Group because I I was in my last corporate role back in sort of twenty fourteen is when I or end of beginning of twenty fifteen is when I finished. But I'd spent about sort of twelve to eighteen months looking at businesses, and you know my wife and I wanted to be back in our own business. We'd done it before, and you know we both agreed that doing startups was just way too hard. Like let's not do startups anymore. Um, and then I've been on this journey for about 18 months looking at businesses and I just I just found that by and large most of the brokers I spoke to I was very frustrated with and um, and I just saw this as a massive gap in the market that there was nobody really servicing these small to medium enterprises the way I thought that they should be serviced um, you know it was yeah and, and, and I guess having come out of banking I saw what what from a compliance perspective, what I needed to do to be able to advise clients about their their money, their assets, and their investments, and then I saw these business owners, and and often in many cases their business would have been their largest asset, like worth more than their home, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and yet the advice they were getting, I, it horrified me, and so. Um, it's kind of where the idea of Exit Advisory came from. Admittedly, we didn't start the business for like another sort of 18 months or something like that. I, it took me a little while to kind of wear my wife down and convince her that this is actually somewhere, it's something we should do. Um, what was some of the bad advice you were hearing? Uh, do you know, no, it wasn't so much bad advice because I was representing myself. Um, it was more that when I was looking and inquiring on companies, the... So many, so many people w wouldn't return phone calls and emails. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm a buyer. I, I literally had done this two-page profile of myself, and I'd sent it out to a bunch of brokers, saying because I just wasn't getting the responses. I'm like, look, here's who I am. I, like, I'm on the websites, I'm looking, but here's who I am. Here's my background. Here's my experience. My qualifications. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I'm not looking for. I even put my picture on there because you know you've got to have a picture to connect with people. And yeah, <laughs> and, and I was like, look, I'm. Yeah, I'm self-funded. I'm I'm ready to go. I don't need loan applications. I'm, you know, if you've got anything in these kind of spaces, and and look, some people responded to me, but a lot I didn't even get a response from. And I was like, wow, like this is just you've got a bizarre. Very qualified like, buyer that's looking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, and then, and then when I did inquire on businesses, I'd get these kind of 
I, I still remember one of them. It was like a two-page unformatted Word document that was acting like a, an information memorandum. And I just went, oh, my God, this is the way you're presenting this client's business. I mean, and, wow. and look, and I get it. Having been in this industry now and I've, we've, as a company, we've been around for about six years and we've sold a lot of businesses, I, I get it. There are some business owners, they don't want to spend money on anything. Right? They don't want to spend money on marketing. They don't want to spend money on a proper campaign. They don't want to invest in it. And certainly what we chose very early on is that, you know, that's actually not the type of client we, we will work with. You know, if you're not willing to invest in your own success, why should we run around and take all the risk and do all the hard work? And, you know, and, and I think most brokers would certainly um, agree with that. So, um, but yeah, look, it was just, it was just a gap. You know, I just, I saw at one end of the market, you kind of had a lot of people kicking around as brokers and, you know, there's, and there's a lot of cafes and restaurants and hairdressers and things like that, that and, and there's a lot of them turning over a lot. You know, there's a lot of brokers making good money on those sort of transactions, but I was never interested in that. Um, it was more that kind of, you know, minimum sort of one to two million value up to really um, around about 50 million is kind of where we play. And right. then when you get over that 50 million, I mean, we, we, there's no reason we can't do businesses from 50 to 100. And we, we certainly are dancing in that space with a few clients now. But, um, but once you get up to that space, you're kind of more on the radar for the big end of town. And, you know, del you know, one of the big four sweeps in and offers you all these other services and does your auditing. And by the way, we'll handle the sale. And, you know, they'll charge you like a, you know, wounded bull. But, uh, <laughs> right. but, you know, that's the market, right? So some, somewhere in the middle here is where we just went, wow, there's, there's good companies, really good people who need professional advice and they're probably just not getting it at the moment. Um, and so, hey, Exit Advisory Group was born. But um, anyway, this is actually not about me. I'm more interested in hearing about your business and your journey. <laughs> I'm fascinated um, to hear because, yeah. <laughs> so, well, thank you for indulging me. But, uh, yeah. So, so tell me, when you started going out to, you know, you're looking at businesses I'm finding when I, you know, we're out chatting to a lot of buyers these days, the, the big issue is often comes down to funding. And, and I think there's, like what you said is, you know, sometimes funding comes from a bit of vendor financing and different things. So there's some, sometimes it comes down to the structure of the deal. But did you, um, you know, without getting too private here on you, but was funding an issue? Had you thought about it? Did you need to borrow money? What, what was that process like for you? Well, I made the first acquisition 18 years ago, and on that one, I used the home my home equity line um, to 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 make the initial payment, um, and then there was some payoff that happened along the way. Um, but but usually, but it was the home equity line. When I did the second acquisition seven or eight years ago, that's when I went to the bank, and I had you know ten years of of a business at a year over year growth. And uh, in the U.S. here, you can get a small business loan that's backed by the SBA, the Small Business Association, so backed by the government. So when I went to get that loan, the bank said, you know, you're right on the line, but we're going to ask for it to be SBA back. So they did that. Um, and it was wonderful when it was paid off, <laughs> which was a couple of years ago. So, uh, but yeah, so I did, I did use money. I used other people's money the first, the second time, but I used my own, my own, you know, my name on the signature and home equity line on the house. So, uh, yeah, but the other thing I wanted to add in, this is what I was thinking about, is 
I think as a first time buyer, I was very hesitant about getting loans and buying a bigger business. But after going through the process and knowing what I, I do, that I would encourage anybody who's listening and thinking about it to do to form a relationship with the bank, go in, ask to meet your business broker or business banker, sit down with them and say, hey, look, this is my profile. What could I borrow? And then, of course, it depends on the kind of business, because if it's, you know, I'm in services, so we don't have many assets but we've got client lists and we've got the, the brand name recognition. But if you're in a manufacturing or something with a lot of assets, then you can get out a bigger loan. And it's a much, you've got a bigger company that's used to running with a team that's there. So it's really not as risky as buying a small one that's more dependent on you as an individual. That's a fantastic point. It really is. It's it's the perception of risk. It, it, uh, there's a perception that the risk is higher because there's a bigger price tag. But in fact, and, and it doesn't always correlate, but the bigger price tag tends to relate to a more stable business that is less risky. So it's it's kind of this funny dichotomy, isn't it? Yes, it really is. And it, it it's still, you know, it's it's easier to say than it is to act on, but it really is worth acting on because you you minimize your risk that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The the lead up, I mean, obviously, I think anybody who signs a piece of paper that puts their home down as security, I mean, that's. I, I think you'd have to probably have a few screws loose if that didn't make you a little bit nervous. Um, after you did the deal. It was all finished. You own the company. You're now in it. Did that fear go away? Was it replaced by this? Just right. It's hands on now. Let's go. Or, or did were there other moments in that sort of history where you you know it played on your mind a bit? Yeah, um, a friend of mine, Lori Heffernan, who's another a business owner. She and I did a presentation on this. It was called you know climb the mountain or jump off the cliff. And I always <laughs> felt like I'm, st you know, you go along and then you feel like you're standing at the edge of the cliff going, do I make this jump? And so the first jump I had to make is, do I sign on the dotted line? Now, now, uh, you know, another one was when I'm increasing staff, that always feels like it's a jump. Like, am I going to do that? When I went to make the second acquisition, when I handed responsibility off to somebody who was going to become, you know, management team, like all these times are times that you feel like you're jumping off the cliff. But her premise is before you jump off the cliff, you've done the work. And if I look back, um, before I bought the company, while we were in the due diligence phase, I wrote a business plan. And, you know, I, yeah, I said I have an MBA and I worked in the industry. But if you look across business owners, there is no correlation between education, type of business, who you are, type of experience, your age. None of it makes a difference. You know, the, the thing is, is that internal voice of do you think you can do it? So, but I did, you know, I was blessed to have the background on how to write a marketing plan, but you can go online and say how to write a marketing plan, get it and fill in all the criteria. So I wrote, or, you know, actually it was a business plan. I wrote a business plan and it wasn't because I needed to have one. It was because it made me think through all the different criteria that I'd need to think through. So when I actually signed for it, I felt like I was jumping off the cliff. But I had done the work to make sure I had a parachute or a soft landing. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really interesting. 
You know, I've I've seen over the years, um, in on many occasion actually, where people have come out of the corporate world and they're looking to do their own thing. And and sometimes they've been highly successful people, you know, very respectful. Big jobs, huge numbers of staff, big you know P and Ls to manage, all the rest of it, and and they've been very successful in driving this large you know business unit, and then they've decided somewhere along the line, I want to stop making money for other people, I want to do it for myself, I want to be my own boss, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then they come and they look at businesses, and of course, because their own personal finances aren't that of a large corporate, they need to look at smaller businesses, and. What I find is happening in many cases is that they bring this large business thinking and try to apply it to a small, almost micro business. Um, and so this idea of I'll do a plan and, you know, the, in our team, they sort of go, we always go, oh, did they do the MBA on it, right? Like, and I, and I have an MBA and I, you know, I love doing my MBA. I got a lot out of it. I I, I probably use things from it every day in my thinking, but it's, but <laughs> this idea of I'm applying very large multinational sort of standards to a tiny little business, the deals always fall over. It's like smashing a, you know, a nut with a sledgehammer. Like you just don't need to do that. And, and I'm just, I'm just, you, you just triggered me, you triggered me with your comment before about at some point you kind of just actually have to look at it and go, do I think I can do this or not? Um, because there's always risk, right? If there wasn't risk, there'd be no reward. But, <laughs> you know, I, I just, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it, how, do, how do we make that leap? How do we, you know, whether it's a leap or a climb, I mean, I think we could use probably a bunch of different analogies here, but at some point you've got to either decide to have a go or not. Yes, yes. And that comes down to your belief in yourself. And for me, it was, and, and what's your motivation? I mean, my motivation was I had two kids at home and I didn't want to do the corporate job anymore because it's not family friendly. And I wanted and I wanted to work. I mean, I like to work. And so I went, this is something similar to what I've done before. It's a new industry, but I can learn it and I'm passionate about it. And so a little bit of that desperation, I'm going to make it work because I don't want to go back to corporate. <laughs> <laughs> totally understand that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's funny because my wife is my co-founder here and we've every business we've done, we've just done together. And people always go, God, you, you, you say you're married, you live together, you work together. And I said, yeah, yeah. I've been often our friends laugh because they say it's walking around the neighborhood together. Like, you know, we, we spend a lot of time together. It's, it's funny. I actually like my wife. It's, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, totally right. Um, but, but it was this idea of when we decided to do a business, there was no safety net of, oh, well, my partner has a job and there's an income there. It was, we both got, went in boots and all. And, and I think, for us, I, I've realized over the years that we've always had probably a higher risk tolerance or threshold than a lot of people. But beyond that, there was kind of a, I don't want to say burn the bridges, that sounds extreme, but you know, when you both jump in boots and all, you're committed, right? There's, there's, no, there's no turning back, like we're doing this. And you can't for a second entertain these little thoughts of, oh, well, you know, hubby's got a job or the wife's got a job and it's okay. And, you know, I, I, I think that's, uh, allowing yourself off the hook, um, whereas we've always sort of had to go. No, we do. We're doing this because we believe in what we're doing. We believe this is the right way to go. And frankly, we don't need to be the best in the world. We just need to be good and deliver for our clients and do the right stuff, and we'll get there. 
That's yeah. I mean, that's an MBA school. You learn that there's always a dominant and then a number two player and then everybody else or has been. But when you're running small business, you're looking at the total addressable market. You're going, okay, if my goals are this, I only need this fraction. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and what is that special little niche I can carve out and, and reach that? Yeah. Totally, totally. So, yeah, so that's fascinating. So, so a couple of, um, you know, logistical kind of matters, if you, if you don't mind. Um, can, can I ask, how, how big was the business when you bought it? Like revenue, was there staff? Like, can you give us a sense of the size? Yeah, well, the first one that I bought there, well, actually both of them, um, they had an employee um, that didn't decide to come on. And so I had to scramble and hire people that were coming on. Yeah. So I've always been real curious about that is how many times, you know, when you're talking small companies, um, how often do the people come on or do they just say, I'm loyal to the owner, so I'm going to leave too? That's a good question. And let's address that. Yeah. So so the first couple of companies you bought, they had one employee that didn't. So it was basically you bought the business. Did the owner exit stage left or, as well at the same time or? Two weeks later. Two weeks later. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've got a business, no staff in them. And you're, you know, obviously you've got all the assets, client lists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But pretty much it's it's up to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, with the first one, it was completely up to me. And she was not interested in, she had run the business as long as she wanted, but it, it didn't have a website, it didn't have a CRM, it didn't, you know, things were all done on paper back in the day. And so I really could see the opportunity of how to bring, you know, just basic technology in and leverage that. So um, I did that and then hired a project manager pretty quick to come in and take care of that. So by the time I made the second acquisition, I did have a handful of staff. And so, but then we quickly looked and said, okay, we're going to need more staff because the owner was heavily involved in it and the employees. So it was like two people at least that we needed to come on to handle the amount of business that we were doing. You know, all our linguists are subcontractors. We do 200 languages. And so it's really the project management. So we hired very quickly. Um, benefit and, you know, negative or positive and negative as I broke my leg skiing in the midst of that acquisition. And oh. so it delayed things and the seller got really annoyed and the bank had to step in and say, hey, she's toked up on Percocet. We're not going to accept any documents that she signed. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. And so, but then after I got off of that, I was laid up at least six weeks with, you know, casted. And so I did spend a lot of time working, training, getting, you know, hiring, getting people going. So yeah. and it kept me completely wow. engaged while I was laid up with my leg. I'm quite active. So in the normal yeah. stance, so, you know, just interesting timing. Yeah, it was in the second one, I did have a team that could help with the due diligence and could jump in and help solve things, but we needed to get people in pretty quick. Yeah, okay, okay. It's it's funny, I mean, breaking your leg, I mean, it's horrible, but it's funny how I, um, I'm always saying to our clients, like with due diligence, I mean, it really depends. I've seen due diligence knocked over in three days just because everyone was organized and really focused and whatever else. Um, and in other cases, I've seen it take, 
three, four months just because of dramas and pushouts and COVID and this and that. But it's, I'm always saying to my clients, look, you know, allow for a couple of months in your mind for this this stuff to go through because something random always happens. You know, like the, the lawyer suddenly has gone on a holiday that's been planned for a while that we just didn't know about. Somebody's gone into labor. Somebody breaks their leg. It's just like random stuff happens and you need to kind of not allow it to derail you or freak you out. It's just It's just part of life, right? And walk away in the middle of due diligence. I was looking at a deal earlier this year and the the books were just a mess in my account. It was a, a small, a very small company. He was ready to retire and I in paper-based. And so I was like, we could easily fold this into our system. But when the books were such a mess and the accountant was like, we need this or need to, and I was like, it's just, it's, it's too risky at this point. So, too hard, yeah. 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 Okay. So, so speaking of risk, so you first, the first company you bought, can I ask what, what what was it turning over at the time when you bought it? Yeah, it was it was about a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. So it was small. So we have grown tremendously since then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Okay. So so you know, talking of risk, I mean, like you're looking at that business. It's not like it's suddenly going to give you a regular income either, right? Like yeah. that's. Did you take anything out of the business? When, when did you start taking a salary or some kind of formal kind of pay out of it? Um, I had paid down the home equity line within the first year. I think it was within nine months. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So I, I took the whole client list and I started, you know, luckily I had a background in sales so I just took everything and restarted it up and made the connections and, and built it from there. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, there you go. I mean, like it's, as, you, as you say, that's the issue of buy a bigger business. You spend more up front, but you've got more security. It's probably paying you an income and all those sort of things. So, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that one that's was really small. The second one was a bigger acquisition. And now, like I said, the small one we looked at, was probably about that size where we would just pull it in. But then, you know, I'm looking for, yeah, if you know of any translation companies for sale, <laughs> I'm interested. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I've had another guest on this show who had a translation company and uh, and she sold it. It was a very successful transaction. And, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll flick you a link with the, the show notes because it, um, it was an interesting company and deal. They did a lot of um, translation for legal companies. Um, you know, this whole cross-border thing with contracts, it's like... Is that you Michelle? Know, uh, oh, Michelle? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll, send you the, I'll send you the link okay. anyway. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good opportunity to talk with others about the episode. Well, that's okay. Well, we'll, put, we'll, we'll certainly put something in the show notes as well. But it's um, no, but look, at, I'm interested with your business though. Like you've, because of this sort of buy and, and grow or buy and build sort of levers that people are pulling, you know, you bought this first business. How long was it before you bought your second one? Um, about 10 years. Um, but in that time period, I went through a divorce and one of my sons was hospitalized twice. Oh man. And so there was a lot that happened in those 10 years. So I always kind of had an eye out for it, but I was never at the stage of life where I would have been able to integrate it effectively. So that's, that's one of the reasons it took so long. So, um, 
Yeah. Well, I'm, yes. I mean, I'm sorry to hear about all those things, but and the reason I was smiling earlier was it's like it never ceases to amaze me how entrepreneurs and business owners they they seem to manage to juggle lots and lots of different things all at the same time. So, and and you know, I mean, she's divorce has got to be one of the hardest things you ever go through in life. I mean, I it's you know, I think Either there's a that list or of your most- son in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, my goodness. Um, yeah, so there was a lot, there was a lot, and you know what? I think entrepreneurs can do it because of the teams they build around them. I mean, thank God for the people I had working with me because they're the ones that carried me through. So that's another huge thing: is buy a company, make sure you get a good team. Yeah. Let me ask you, and I'm keen to talk a little bit about the growth of your business in that 10 years. Like, what did the journey look like? Um, but just before I get to that, I mean, I'm curious to get your feedback. I find in all my travels, the business owners, the entrepreneurs I speak to, compared to perhaps people who are in corporate and kind of you know, when you're in corporate, I think you've just got this big machine and system. I don't think many people living in corporate are worried about the business going south and them not having a job. I mean, most of them would probably, if they really thought about it, go, well, I can probably get another job, um, particularly in today's environment. But I find entrepreneurs seem to have a higher threshold or, or, or high level of comfort with uncertainty. And, and I think this seems to me in my travels that that is a critical ingredient for you to be able to go out on your own. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts around that? Did you, have you had that experience yourself? Uh, I, I am comfortable with a large degree of uncertainty, and I'm certainly more of a risk taker, so it's hard, hard to know. But, yeah, I mean, I just think back to when I was at corporate after, you know, after business school when I had the jobs. It, it was weird to me because I'm like, wow, this big paycheck's coming in all the time. My medical care is covered. I've got assistants that are going to book my travel. And I had to hire somebody. And HR was pissed because I was doing interviews before the people went through. I'm like, and they were mad at me. I'm like, wait a minute. You're going to screen the resumes, do the first interview, and then you're going to send qualified candidates over to me. And then you're going to check references. I don't want to do that. Take You go. <laughs> so for me, stepping in from small business to large business, I had that, that reverse thing. You know, it's a little brutal when you then leave that and you have to all of a sudden start doing those things again. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> turn to your assistant and all you see is the mirror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and we're a virtual company. We've been virtual since I made the first acquisition, you know, 18 years ago. And so there are things like if the, the copier jams up, I got to fix yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. sure. So, sure. you know, every every time the copier jams, I think I should get an office and just have an assistant in there at least. But well, yeah, but that, that comes with baggage as well, right? I mean, I, I you know, we're virtual. We've had we've had a, a serviced office in the past and COVID hit and we just we scrapped it because it like everybody did. And, and, and we just probably like a lot of professional services companies spent, there's no need to go back. You know, we have a team full of independent adults. They actually work fantastically the way they want to work. So um, so I think that the, the world has certainly changed in the last few years re- regarding all of that. But um, so, so let me change gear here. I'm, I'm really keen to um, talk a little bit about this growth perspective because you know, I think a lot of our listeners, they're, they're not um, necessarily ready to exit. They're all thinking about growth. They're thinking about, you know, is that going to be organic? Is it acquisition, et cetera? You've done both. 
which I think is really cool. So you've bought Rapport International. We probably, maybe I should have covered this early in the podcast, but t- tell us a little bit about who were the clients you served, how did you serve them, what was kind of the model, and, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you grew that model. Okay, so yes, Rapport International connects people around the world in any language. Um, and so we provide written translation services and spoken interpretation services. Now, when all the technology came in, we thought, oh boy, is this going to put us out of business? But as we now know, the technology isn't good enough because language is fluid and it's changing all the time. And there's so many local nuances to it. So we have carved out that niche of still providing very high quality in person. Now, we can do it across any programs. We can, you know, with a the, with written translations, it's websites. We've gone into proprietary apps and done translation in there. Um, it's brochures. We have a real specialty in global marketing. Um, so anything that has to be done accurate that can affect your, your top line revenue or your liability if you don't get it right. And interpreting, it can be video, telephone, in-person conference interpreting. So um, who we service then are people who care about their their messages getting out accurately. Um, We work with a lot of manufacturers, consumer product companies, um, business to business like research uh, companies that put out research papers. uh, we, we and then the other specialty we have is in the medical and healthcare. So everything from patent research all the way through the stages of development, whether it's clinical trial authorizations, regulatory or commercialization, and then we do a lot of in-person interpreters for doctors. Um, so we work with a lot of major medical um, facilities to provide the services. So you know the the growth has been interesting we are um, a hubspot partner so we do a lot of inbound we've got a great marketing department that puts out a lot of content um you can go to our website rapporttranslations.com and search for anything and you know we'll have an article on there if we don't let us know because it's a gaping hole and we need to do that um, and then we do the podcast to interview people who are doing global marketing because a lot of people just don't know where to start and, and get intimidated by it. Um, I have tried in the past to hire some salespeople. Um, I have tried some telemarketers. Um, I have not had good luck with that. So I have done most of the sales. So, you know, if, if you know, through networking, uh, through referrals and helping people do the strategy. Now, this past year, when we started using the book Traction, um, we realized that we have a gaping hole there. Like, I can't do it anymore. I need somebody that can lead up the sales, but I can't hire a sales lead that isn't going to roll up their sleeves and do it because we need a doer to put the processes in, prove it, and then hire out the team. So we're in the process. Of, you know, I'm taking a lot more time of interviewing, trying to find the right person with the right experience, and then we have a sales map to do it. So, you know, building out that sales um, has, has been a challenge for me. I have faith we'll get there. You know, we just keep trying things as every entrepreneur does. Um, and at the same time, I continue to look for acquisitions. I just got connected to somebody who's thinking about it. Um, and we talked, she was very concerned about culture fit and high quality, and I think we'd be a good fit. So we just have to see where she, she goes in her process. Um, That's interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, let me go back one step here. You mentioned you tried hiring salespeople and this telemarketing, and which is very much a direct sales route. And it sounds to me now, you know, and I get that that didn't work. I've run teams like that as well. It is hard. There's so much people management. There's just, you know, you, you, how do you get the same experience across a team of very, very different people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it sounds like you've then shifted to more of a content-led strategy where you are positioned as the experts and therefore people are more inbound rather than outbound. Is, is that a fair comment? Yeah, well, we've always been an inbound. And then I think after a while we say, okay, we're getting leads in from this, but how do we be more laser-focused and do outreach and follow-up with people? So, gotcha. um, you know, sourcing, because you can't buy a list of who needs translation services. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a socio dynamic principle, you know, value of this of the CEO or somebody on the senior leadership team. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, without mentioning names, do you have any real competitors out there that that you kind of bump up against? There are hundreds of translation companies in the United States and thousands of them around. And the reason there's so many of them is uh, because linguists will start, like say they do Spanish-English translation, and then all of a sudden they're too busy. So they pull in somebody else that they can subcontract some of that work. And then somebody will say, well, can you do French too? And they go, oh yeah, I can do French too. So there's a lot of small companies that do that. There are a cut, there's a handful of them that are larger, but none that are a household name because the target market is very specific in, in there. It sounds very, very fragmented. So so my next sort of question, and I, I think I have the answer given everything you've already said to me, but I'll ask anyway. So what would you say is your key point of differentiation to this kind of fairly scattered market? Um, the key differentiation is, is that we're doing high quality. We have an understanding of uh, global marketing. So, you know, that's that's a niche, understanding how to attract, engage, and delight customers. Um, we do linguistic matchmaking. That means when a client comes into us, we look at the subject matter and the language, and then we match a linguist to them because we believe that translators are like writers and the more they get to know your content, the better and easier it gets to form that relationship and understanding. Um, and then we have a hundred percent on-time delivery rate. So, like you were talking about, you know, just the service not being provided. Like to me, service is a basic necessity. But I have found that a lot of the um, other companies don't deliver on time or the quality isn't high enough. So I'm like, well, if that's a, I don't think of those as differentiators, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> multiple marketing agencies say that they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, so, okay, so you've, you've had this growth. Uh, can you tell me, you know, you start, okay, so you started with 100K in revenue, no employees. Um, can you give me, give us a sense, and I don't want to tread on anything here that might be too confidential, but can you give us a sense of how big the company is now? Yeah, we have 12 or 14 employees now. And um, yeah, I just, I'd have to count them up. So 
12 or 14, I don't want to say 13, it's something like that. <laughs> we outsource our finance and we've done that for years because they've been able to grow with us. It's analytic solutions. They're based here in Massachusetts, but do everything over in India. So it's done like that overnight. Um, and, you know, I'll just say that only 2% of U.S. businesses get to over the million dollar mark and we're well over that. So uh, we've had a successful track record. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. That's very cool. Um, something I'm always curious about with with business owners is have you have you ever th have you been have you thought about exit? Have you thought about is there is there an ultimate plan here for you? Um, you know what what does even success look like for you? Yeah, I um, I would like to run the business probably another ten years, and then I'd plan on selling it. Um, and that's why it's real important for, to get me out of sales and make sure that all the systems and processes are in there. I mentioned the book Traction before. And, um, you know, we've hired Cruise Consulting out of Boston that's doing a good job to make sure that, you know, they're, they're catching things that we might be blind to. Um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm, yeah, so that's my plan. Yeah, no, that's cool. And I may not stick to it, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, things change, and that's okay. I think I think you know I talk to a lot of business owners about you know what does the end game look like because I think I think as people, I think as business owners, we're hardwired for growth. You know, how do we grow? What's the next step? How do we build? Get the next customer, you know, and do all these sort of things. And yes, we're trying to systemize and do all these other sort of good stuff that we all hear about along the way, but. I, I just find a lot of, like I even had one client who was saying to me, he, you know, he wanted to get to, to 10 mil in revenue. And I said, okay, that's great. Um, what, why 10 mil? Why, why is that number important? And, and really when it all boiled down to it, and it, it was just that they just felt like that was a good goal to achieve and they would be proud of themselves. And, and, and that's all fine as well, right? Like it's good to have a goal and it's kind of cool to feel like you've climbed a particular mountain. And, um, but I was, just chatting to this particular person about, well, like growth just for the sake of growth can kind of sometimes seem pointless. I mean, especially if you get 20 years down the track and you look back and go, hang on a minute, I was so focused on that that I forgot or I missed out on other elements that were important in my life. And so, yeah, I just I was sort of encouraging them to say, well, like, well, let's define what success looks like. Let's define what an end game should look like. Even if it changes, you might get five years down the track and, and your perception of success changes. That's okay. But like the, it gave a sense of underlying purpose to the growth. And yes. so, yeah, and it just, and it, and it also gave this person a sense of freedom that, hey, if I think I'm going to hit that in 10 years, if I hit it in five, isn't that lovely to have options? Isn't it lovely to know, hey, if I wanted to exit now, I could. And so, I guess trying to give that structure or framework around business owners who are all, we're all rush, 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 I, I, I've, I've found anyway has given them a lot of direction, comfort, and, and you know, well, as I said, sense of purpose, I guess. Oh, that is, it's so important to do that because, you know, I guess it, it was just coming to me. Do you play golf? I I go out and I tend to butcher up grass and swing and the occasional swear word. And so what I do is not really playing golf. It's just <laughs> trying not to embarrass myself too badly. <laughs> okay. So you've, you've been out on the golf course enough to know that this saying, you drive for show and putt for dough. 
I was just thinking about that. You know, the revenue number is your drive. I mean, that's what you can walk in and say, yeah, my revenues are this. Because nobody says my profits are this or my take home is this. They all say what their revenue is. And that's what the bragging rights are. But I think the profit is that that putt for dough. And, and not only profit, it's those other things in life that are so important, the relationships and the fitness and the, the children and the spirituality. So now I've always run the business that this, I run the business so I can have the life that I want, you know, and now I'm looking at, okay, what's the retirement that I want and what's, where do I need to get the business so I can have the retirement I want? Yeah, nice. You mentioned you got a couple of boys. Um, has there ever been any discussion about the kids coming into the business or you know taking over it one day or anything like that? I I never thought that was going to ha- happen, but uh, my youngest one just went off to Costa Rica for his first semester of college, and as we were you know working through our last quarter of living together. Um, of course, in business terms, I'm talking about a family thing, but he said, well, yeah, I even thought about taking over the business sometime, you know, kind of like if you think about it, I was like, wow, hadn't thought about it, but yeah, go get yeah. some real experience and then come back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah, going to yeah. be your boss right now. <laughs> yeah, before I let you tamper with my other baby, you need to go and make sure that you've done the nanny course and the, you know, you, the CPR and you <laughs> Luckily, he wants to get into sales. So I'm like, go learn selling because that will never hurt. I mean, that always helps as a business owner. Look, absolutely. And I certainly have got a lot of clients who have seen the benefits of sending their kids out to go learn from other people, um, you know, and and understand what it's like not to be the boss's son or daughter. You know, go, go and understand what it's like out there and then bring that experience and that, frankly, humility. Back to the family business. That's exactly what it is, the humility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Um, Wendy, I, I'm cognizant of time. I'm, I'm fascinated with your story. Maybe we might have to get you back on in another, you know, couple of years and you can talk about the next number of acquisitions you've done. But uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you have written a book. Tell me quickly about that. Yes, it's called The Language of Global Marketing. And the reason that I wrote it is because a lot of companies are scared of going to com- other com- other countries. And uh, so often you'll hear, you know, somebody from Australia wants to go to the United States or the United States wants to go to the UK because they speak English when it's they haven't done their strategy. Where's your best market and where's less competition so you don't have to go against all the other English speaking countries? companies that are going in there. So it starts with, you know, how to think about, well, why go international? What are some of the hot markets? Why they're all growing? Why this is important now? Because global disposable income is so much higher. And then how do you think about marketing? And then when you're going into another language, it puts it as in a process from strategy, technology, process, and um, quality, and the different considerations you have in all that in those areas. And then what to do once you get to customer customer service. So it really is the handbook. I've gotten, um, we won an award. We've been a bestseller. Um, I say we, because, you know, I, I had so much help in <laughs> drafting and editing and designer, and, you know, writing a book is not a solo thing. I mean, it's a lot solo, but um, it takes a team. 
Um, so yeah, it's available on on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I recorded the audio version in my uh, uh, wine cellar that I use as a gift cabinet down in my basement <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> so there's you know ebook, hard copy book, or you know paperback, and then um, electronic version. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm, we'll put some um, links to the book in the show notes for the uh, for this episode as well. Um, can I ask? Are, are you are you happy if anyone's listening to your story and they've got questions? Are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Oh, and, absolutely. I'm cool. very active on social media, so you can find me Wendy Pees on LinkedIn. If you have Linktree, you can find a free copy, uh, a free chapter of the book. You can find the podcast. You can find all my social media links. Um, you can find our website. So it's linktree slash Wendy Pease. Do you know Linktree? I, I'm not that familiar with it, no. So so it's, yeah, what, what, what is it? L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Wendy Pease. You go there. It's You can set up a free account and then you can put all your links to everything there. So if somebody oh, says, wow. oh, can you send me your contact? You just send one and they can find everything about you. So yeah, nice. You like okay, cool. Oh, well, Twitter, uh, better than LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously you're on LinkedIn. I know we're connected there as well. So um, look, as we always say on this show, I mean, you know, if you're going to reach out to Wendy, maybe just Give her a little note. Let her know that you heard her on the podcast, so she has a little bit of context of, of where you're coming from. But um, look, other than that, I think you know, Wendy. Thanks for for coming on the show and sharing your story. Um, can I ask one final question? I, is there, you know, for the for the would be business owners out there, you know, whether they're maybe looking to start or get into business or they're look, you know trying to grow, is there? Do you, do you have a final parting tip or piece of advice that you, you'd share with them? Yeah, just be passionate about what you're doing. Just, you know, love the industry that you're in because you can continue to learn. Like each year I still learn and I grow and I love it because I'm just, I love the industry. Yeah. Look, great advice. Great advice. Thank you, Wendy, so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. I've loved your story and I look forward to version two one day. Uh, thank you so much, Simon. It was great talking to you. Brilliant. And for everyone listening, uh, the please check out the show notes. Uh, we'll have uh, contacts there for Wendy from LinkedIn to Twitter to uh, Linktree is a new name. It. So, and of course, get a, get along and buy the, the language of global marketing. It sounds like a fascinating book. Um, I know we've certainly toyed with the ideas of, of going international in a, in a range of different ways. So I know I've got a little bit of reading ahead of myself as well. So thank you all for listening to the show and we'll catch you next time. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. 
For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowcell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.